Hi there, welcome to Active Intelligence. I'm Aaron Ironside. I hope you'll spend the next half an hour or so with me as we discuss social issues from a variety of perspectives and I promise not to tell you what to think. But perhaps today I should have opened with Kia ora koutou, because today we take a look at Te Reo Māori and how one of our official languages is finally being integrated into New Zealand life. Although that integration is not happening as easily as we might hope, it's time for us to engage some active intelligence. On today's episode, I talk to Tiara Grace. He's a consultant to businesses around how to incorporate te reo Māori and tikanga into their practices, although he prefers to be called an indigenous energy uh, because he reckons he's just speaking for himself today. So we'll talk to him a little later on as we take a look at the issue of how te reo Māori is being brought in, incorporated into everyday New Zealand life. It seems to me there are two New Zealands. There's the one of my children, who are now young adults, for whom te reo Māori seems normal and second nature. They have no trouble pronouncing things correctly. But then there's an older generation, one that's grown up in another New Zealand where the words were not pronounced correctly, uh, but they're the way they know. Is it Wangarei or, or Whangarei? Look, here's Marcus Lush from Newstalk ZB's night program having a rather heated discussion with a lady from Dunedin about why apparently she's not pronouncing the name of her own town correctly. Would you deliberately call a cheese camembert? Hell no, I know better than that. But you don't, but you'd, but you'd mispronounce Opaho. No, it's not mispronounced. That's my hometown, Marcus. Um, no, that, that is. But but if I told you how it was pronounced, right? Well, it's a bit late now, dear. I'm well, actually uh, soon. But 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 why is it too late now? Well, because that's my that's my that's my heart, that's my birthplace. But but um, but if but if you're deliberately continuing to mispronounce it, no, I'm not deliberately deliberately. Well, well if I told if Mary, so if I told you how it was pronounced. And and then if you found out how it was pronounced, well, then you do it. No. But why not? Because then you would be wolf. it's mine. It's my but, region, Mike. No. No, no you, but, disrespect but, to anybody But Mary, else. well, it is disrespect because then you no, are being not. willfully ignorant. You are. No, like hell I am. <laughs> well, you, but you're deliberately pronouncing no, it wrongly. I'm no, I'm not. Well, you are. Oh, well, thanks for that, Marcus. You but, keep, but, you'll but, but keep that, your idea and I'll keep mine. No, but 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 if that's not how it's pronounced, right? I finally find this out on, on Thursday night. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and um, after all this time... Yeah, but that, isn't, that, isn't, that ex, isn't that exciting? You can learn something new? Oh, well, I'm, I'm on to that too. I'm just certainly nothing... Um, pedantic, uh, whatever the word is about me. But no, no, that's... That's it. Um, and um, I love the word Opaho. I had friends from Scotland. Oh, I just love Dunedin. And um, I'm all right with it. No, but okay, I'm so certainly not so ignorant. And please so don't call me that. But you're deliberately mispronouncing it. No, I'm not. No. You are. No, you I'm are. No, and you've no, said no, that no. you You've said that yourself, but that's fine, but, but own it. I haven't it. said so. I've said I'm not. No, it's not ignorant, and I find that insulting for you to say that about me, because I'm not, and that's as simple as that, okay? But you are deliberately mispronouncing a word. I don't keep saying that, Marcus. 
Well, I absolutely get this one from both sides. On the one hand, so difficult to expect this lady to pronounce the name of her own hometown differently to the way she and everybody she knows has been saying it for her entire life. Opaho, though, is not in fact a Māori word, or poho is. And words mean something, and that's part of the problem here. One is just a sound, the other is words, and of course there is a technically correct way of saying it. I mean, I would prefer that you say Aaron. I, I once worked with a colleague who insisted on calling me Aaron. He was from the UK and he just said Aaron time and time again. I remember one time the boss got so exasperated that he burst out of the office and said, for goodness sake, the man's name is Aaron. Yeah, I'd prefer that you say my name the correct way, but I kind of understand also in England they say it differently. And that's the tension, isn't it? Is there more than one way to say something? And uh, does correct trump what I've known my whole life when all my memories and associations are connected to saying opaho instead of opoho? This problem, of course, of integrating te reo Māori into everyday life is proving to be difficult and we're bumping into problems. Sometimes we're a little too familiar. McDonald's got in trouble because on the packaging of their Angus burger, they dared to say that the patty, the beef patty, was from the Naki instead of from Taranaki. And apparently that was deemed offensive. And so consequently, they've had to change their packaging and they're phasing that out. It's difficult for us to work out where the line is and exactly how it is we can use te reo Māori. But it's great to see that we're trying. In fact, a couple of former colleagues of mine went to Hamilton, where a cafe is working very hard to encourage people to practice ordering their cup of coffee in te reo Māori. But what an intriguing experiment it was, because the older presenter, Nerida, is clearly having trouble with the Māori words. She's having trouble being understood. She's not very fluent. It's really not working out that well for her at all. By contrast, the younger presenter, Sharon, seems to be having no trouble at all, speaking very fluently, being understood, and of course modelling to us just how wonderful it can be when we do actually learn how to do something like order in Te Reo Māori. Uh, well, there you have exactly what I'm talking about. These two New Zealands, Nerida, are finding it more difficult to be understood and to actually say the te reo phrases in a way that's understandable. Sharon, no problem at all. Uh, that's how difficult it really is. I wonder how you and I would go if we were being asked to order in Te Reo Māori. Not that you have to, of course, but it's just being encouraged as a way of practising. My guest today is Teara Grace, and I've known Teara for around 20 years, firstly as an IT expert, but more latterly, he has transitioned into being a Māori community leader, a consultant to the business sector, teaching them how to incorporate both uh, Te Reo words, but also Te Reo culture, uh, tikanga, practices, the Māori worldview, the language and the worldview intimately connected, and how do you get them engaging in regular life and business life and personal life? 
And he's my guest today as we explore some of these real life challenges of seeing Tereo incorporated into everyday life. Kia ora, tēnā well, what a far distance we've managed to travel in just my lifetime. Uh, I can think growing up, uh, I never encountered Te Reo Māori in real life. And yet not so long ago, I was walking along the street of Henderson. In fact, I saw a friend of mine. And as I walked past, I could hear that he and his friend were conversing fluently in Te Reo Māori. And I thought, that is wonderful. That's probably the first time I've ever witnessed that out in public in New Zealand. And yet we do have such a long way to go. And what's your personal story in terms of discovering and embracing uh, Te Reo Māori and, and, and all that it means to be Māori for yourself? I think, um, tēnā koe hoa, mauri ora kia koe, kia koutou, te mātakitaki. So, salutations to you and everyone that's watching. Yeah, look, um, I guess my experience with Te Reo, because I've only been dreaming in Te Reo for um, a handful of years, uh, late bloomer, um, my Te Reo uh, kind of arrived on the back of me putting my children into institutions because those institutions were available. I think what I'm, ex- what I feel like I'm experiencing um, right now is the idea that Te Reo Māori is going through a renaissance. Um, and, you know, I, I think we have data on these things now, so it would be interesting what that data says. But a lot of the data I know of is that many of the courses that I would deem you know, where very competent speakers um, are outputted, are an output, um, they're just chock-a-block, they're full all the time. You know, in fact, one of them is uh, is booked out already for next year, and that's just kind of unheard of. And some of these institutions cost a pretty penny because, you know, to deliver some of those um, content programs is more than what ministry might provide them. You know, there's... Uh, kind of more, more of the emotional, intimate qualities of some of the Tereo programs that are out there actually require a bit more investment. Um, so, yeah, you know, um, and I, I, I think I thought this renaissance was kind of happening in um, the early 90s, but actually it was my personal experience of starting to hang out with more Māori because I was raised in a community where Māori were, you know, a, a, a minority. Um, and But I, I, I was lucky that at that time to not kind of be mistreated. I, I, I don't believe I was mistreated in that community. And I felt that Māori were treated with either a, a sense of equality or um, a definitely a sense of uh, had some, some value. But when I kind of came to the city or hung out with my cousins in the city, that's where I saw a lot of the kind of the more, um, you know, the racially charged um, attitudes and therefore, the you know, you wouldn't see any identity of Māori anywhere at those, uh, certainly in there at those institutions. So, you know, I'm starting to see my Māori-ness reflected back on back at me, um, you know, even on the, the, blaze, the blazes of rugby teams and stuff. So, you know, there's this, you know, I think... I don't know if that's the right way, but it's certainly a response um, of, you know, this newness, I think, this newness of quality that Māori, our Māori offers. Um, and maybe maybe the idea that uh, eventually, finally, if you think about the number one brand in New Zealand, they're not just famous for um, winning rugby games. You don't, we might not like it as a nation if they lose a game, but we couldn't, we would not understand them not doing the haka. We just wouldn't be able to understand that All Blacks not doing the hacker. So therein lies a data point that New Zealand obviously cares about this content 
And why isn't it liberated it better? Um, and I think this renaissance is occurring because, well, you've got another generation now who are more, you know, they've been uh, born in a global war- world, more accepting, probably a little bit more empathetic, dare I say it, matriarchal and, and feminine energies are rising into strategic roles and you're seeing empathy for what I, what I would say are dominated cultures uh, beginning with women and then these minority ethnicities so I think there's a renaissance brother well I agree it is a renaissance and it's a beautiful thing because I remember as a teenager ringing Dr Ranganui Walker to ask him about how many Tereo speakers there were, were in New Zealand for an assignment I was working on and he didn't know the answer which I was blown away that we didn't really even understand understand how widespread or, or in that case uh, potentially dying the language may have been so it is a wonderful thing that's happening but along with the wonderful thing that's happening are these kind of awkward moments these misunderstandings these pushbacks as well and I want to go through a couple of the scenarios and get you to respond to them uh, I've mentioned a couple of them already uh, in this episode so I'll, I'll go back for you and, and talk about a couple of those the first was that McDonald's got uh, in a bit of hot water because on their packaging for their Angus burger, where the meat comes from the Taranaki, they said it was from the Naki. Now, for many, that seems odd that they would get in trouble for that. We often call Dunedin Dunners, we call Hamilton the Tron. But when it came to a Tereo place name, shortening it and giving it an affectionate nickname was off limits. It, for many, that feels like, wow, uh, it, it seems so easy to inadvertently offend. Yeah, no, that's a, I guess we've raised in a society, certainly in our Western society, where we're relaxed on those sorts of things. But I'd, I'd say you wouldn't have to go back maybe maybe a century or two, and that would have been a, an excusable maybe in a in a Western society. You know, there was a affection towards language. You know, you're saying the right things. Um, so I, I, I guess if you think about it from a Te Ao Māori perspective, you some. Uh, one of the issues is, is whereabouts should someone position themselves on a spectrum of being a victim? And the other one is, what is the perception of Taranaki the Maunga? Because Taranaki the Maunga, for some, is their grandparent. And for someone else to just intimately call their grandparent a nickname, well, you, you'd know that. You'd know that, that emotional experience. So... Is it their fault that they have this emotional experience that they've inherited intergenerationally for this amazing being? You could argue it's that very spirit that empowers their guardianship of that that very entity. And that's why actually you're seeing, you used a great icon because we're seeing the weaving of the Western best practice of compliance and the best practice of tikanga and te Māori, which is legislated taranaki as a being. So you've used a very um, clever example here to kind of help me spell out the narrative. So, you know, in, in, one, in one element, you know, if you're using Naki as in your party of friends where you can contain the tapu or the sacredness of, of your use of the, that, that, that term, you know, it's a bit like if someone has a, has a hucker at a party and it gets out online. Well, whenever, whenever anything gets out online, the 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 fence of of um, audience suddenly just blows apart, and then you've got a lot of victims. And I think that's that's our issue. Our issue is how do we manage someone's victim state? And some of that might be we'll make sure they're either excluded and keep it private, or face some of the unintended consequences of your desire to 
perhaps misuse a name that someone might consider misused rather than, oh, I get the context of this and you, you're saying a nickname. So it's, 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 it's a, yeah, we, we're in someone's victim state. And so I think someone who's going, oh, I'm a victim because they've said now that I can't use Naki. Well, have they understood the victim state of the person and where they're coming from? And I think, you know, you're, you're drawing into an issue, which is a, an issue with New Zealand's history, is that it hasn't been taught properly. And I'd argue there's a, you know, I, I think if knowledge is the premise that humans can enlighten themselves, then there's a huge knowledge system of New Zealand's that hasn't been really analysed, inspected and educated on, and it offers an incredible intellect. Um, I want to ask you about uh, something you've just picked up on when you said that if it was in a sort of local context, it might not be so bad. Now, one of the local contexts is, uh, appears in one of the clips I played where a caller spoke with Marcus Lush on News Talk ZB, and she's from the South Island, from a place where she probably doesn't know any Māori people at all, and, and she was born there, and she's saying, actually, the way we say that place name is now the correct way because it's our place. And I, on the one hand, there's that technicality, that precision, that actually her place name is actually a word. It's not a series of sounds. But for her, it's also the place that she calls home. And so for someone to tell her that her home needs to be pronounced a new way, it was no surprise to me that in that call they didn't get anywhere because there was just this collision of values. Yeah, and I think that's sad because if you were, um, if you understood mana economics, you'd realise that there's this ability to be able to agree to disagree. Mana economics takes care of it. In fact, just behind me here is my marae, and marae are a very sacred and special epicentre which these discussions, very heated discussions, go down there. But it's the space that's basically all the ceremony, and you'd know about ceremony rituals. They all occur to basically generate this emotional position in time and space for us to be vulnerable and fragile and to go hard at one another. And so if you created these sacred spaces to do this, have this debate, I mean, what you're debating about is another thing, but to be able to have that debate, to agree to disagree. So I would argue, imagine if the response from the lady was, oh, well, we, we're so intimate with this other version of a name. We're sorry it offends you, but We've just grown up personal with this and we're just going to continue using it. Now, that's a different way of going, F you, I'm not, nah, nah, nah. and rather than, it could look like, oh man, I'm, this is actually an emotional issue, not a, it's about your ethnicity and I don't like your ethnicity. Um, you know, you know I, look, uh, the sacred book uh, tells you, has got these religious truths which, which tell us how to move through these social matrices of, challenge and opportunity i like that answer uh, i i think that perhaps if the lady had been a bit more sort of personal about it, it it mightn't have been such an aggressive conversation although i think we hark back to an earlier point about lack of education for her the the place name is just sounds for those growing up now whose vocabulary is growing they're recognizing words and place names so it's much easier in fact i played this clip of some colleagues of mine who traveled to hamilton with this cafe that has up on the wall 
a, a lovely guide for how to order in Tereomari. Now, the older presenter in her 40s, she very stiffly read the words, clearly not really understanding what they meant, and clearly not really very accurate, because the person at the other side of the counter had to say, say it again, what, what are you wanting? The younger presenter was far more familiar with the words, spoke with fluency, was clearly understood, and they had a beautiful little exchange, and the coffee order happened perfectly in Tereo as it was supposed to. I wonder what you think, for those of us of a certain age, who kind of feel like this ship has sailed. We're just not very good at learning new words. We, we sound awkward, and we're saying it wrong, and is it better to have a go and say it wrong, or just kind of admit defeat and say, you know what, I'm not very good with other languages and I'm not very good with pronunciation? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I, I would dare say that you should always have a go. We, we understand that any language system is basically an intellect. It's not a, like, for example, te reo Māori isn't a language. It's a frontier that, that, that helps you connect to things that you observe in front of you you know that you sense around you it's not a language and so you know it's not just i i find that um there's often the oh what does this word mean that's kind of not how the language works y yeah you can get all these different meanings but interpretation just suddenly goes out the window when you start combining these sound waves together now i would argue that the the elder or the older presenter just needs more empathy and love for her effort you know, if you showed her and went, man, that was awesome. Just keep going. And so you've even got, um, you know, you've got, you've got victims who would just take her to task. And I, I my personal um, view, because I, I find myself on that spectrum as someone kind of less, more liberal, less of a victim, um, really keen to see people have a go. You know, I've, I've got a, I'm comfortable with the mana I've accumulated by tenanting sacred thresholds, thresholds on my marae. I can welcome in super, you know, super guests from other countries. And so all of these things give me enough mana to feel satisfied that I can have my, my opinion. But I think to be able to have my opinion, for you to have yours and for us to able to walk away rather than feel like we failed to convince each other is, I think, a, a, an epidemic in, a, at a, a social level that we, you know, I, I mean, I'll use a real, um, here's, here's, a, here's a, a valid truth, I think, of today. I'm going to compare a couple of cultures. I have this uh, culture, um, a co incorporation that's been challenged the most in the world behind the microbial force. It's the epitome of Western culture, epitome of democracy, and it keeps telling me that I have to be like that. Then I have this other Eastern force, People will accuse it of being, they accuse it of being a communist culture. But that culture's never told me to be like them. And so here's these kind of remarkably two different attitudes. And one that I kind of look at and go, wow, all my friends from that culture don't tell me that they're the best. But they're cool. <laughs> and these other cool friends I have over in this other culture, what upsets me most about them is when they tell me I have to be like them. And, I, you know, I'm just giving you some idea of this cultural shock we're going through right now and that, you know, Māori is a, you're finding an ascension in Māori because at the end of the day, from 17 to 27, I think 25% of the population is Māori. So Māori population is growing. 
And so we, we're now moving out of the space of we're dominating culture because dominating cultures always have, a, have life. But they dominate in culture of an era where we can see each other all at once in space and time, like right now, using digital. This is a new frontier that's going to affect, give culture shock a whole new kind of level of what's going on. You know, I mean, I've, I've been a practicing, thinking I'm a practicing atheist, but actually realizing the problem I've had with, uh, of the biggest problem I should be worried about is actually the absence of religion, not religion itself. Because religious truths are now this wonder that I'm understanding is, oh, I've been trying to cut these things up because of my literal view of them. But actually, they're telling me these religious truths like, ooh, you've got to make some sacrifices to have great outcomes. You might have to bear a cross on your back and it's going to be hard. These are the amazing religious truths that I'm now looking back at. And at my 46 years going, whoa, this is shifting the dial now on my culture because things like COVID have made me look at books and it's made me look at the big book of books. So this is a, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm, I guess I'm saying it's a, a fascinating time of victims and privilege. We're all able, even victims are given platforms on our digital platforms. And I think that's an amazing time. And how do, how do we, if we can understand they're a victim, how do we just show them love even when they're punching us in the face? And I think we need to look to religions to do this because religious truths have had the cures. Science hasn't had it. Science doesn't know how to cure or help me solve someone from punching me in the face other than put your hand in front and block it. And religious truths go, no, have a conversation. (laughs) Lovely. Uh, I want to finish by contrasting a couple of different uh, things I've observed recently. One... And this is probably in the category of sort of how far is too far or how fast is too fast. I I was at a a gathering recently where the person who was leading the gathering uh, greeted the audience in Te Reo Māori. But I looked around the room and I realized there were no Māori in this room and pretty much no one in this room understood what had just been said. So that seemed kind of on the one hand, I was deeply impressed that the person could do it. But on the other, it was like, but was that actually what was needed in that moment, given that really that didn't connect with anybody? On the other was uh, an online conversation that I was surprised by, where a Māori friend of mine was pushing back on uh, seeing uh, a non-Māori group adopt the word kaitiaki, guardian, for uh, the leadership group of their organization and was saying, no, 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 this word has a very special meaning. It's about the land. It's not about your organization. You can't borrow it. Uh, And for me, again, that was kind of like, oh, well, that's Again, a sort of a mixed message. On the one hand, we want Te Reo Māori in everyday life, and English as a language evolves and morphs and grows and changes, but somehow we can't borrow and and use and and try to sort of incorporate without that being sort of labelled cultural appropriation when I don't think there was any intention for it to look anything like that. How far is too far? How fast do we have to go? Do we just need to slow down a bit and say, you know what? On the current trajectory, give it a generation, and Tereo, in a sense, will be back. Yeah, I guess, you know, is, what is, is someone being an imposter? Uh, you know, that's the root of your question. Does adorning the wall with a Māori word, 
is are you able to uphold that word? You know, are you going to be an imposter to that word? Because that word isn't a word, it's a holy sound wave. I mean, you know, there's some names that come out of religious texts that people treat very, very tapu. And you would argue that every single sound wave of Te Reo Māori is tapu. Now, um, I think if you engage with a local tribal energy, like an iwi, of an, if you if you if your house or your office occupies a space that has, well, every space in Aotearoa has an iwi that's associated to it. Go and engage them. You'll find that just by engaging them, having a cool discussion, suddenly you start peeling back the onion layers until you get to the heart of each other's soul and really start being able to share. That you know, I, I, I don't think it's too fast for someone to engage an iwi and go, hey. You know, we don't know who you are. Who are you? Start with that as the intent. But you know that in the long game, you'd love to have this name. I mean, I've, I've had that turn around in a day because the right person spoke to my auntie. Whereas in another process, auntie takes a week to get to or maybe weeks. But she just happened to be at that point in time on the marae and this beautiful sound waves was adorned to this company. And, you know, for me in a professional context, in my Western context, as a, as a as someone who helps businesses navigate this, that was a very strange. That that, that kind of talks to you about Māori time. Māori time, there is you're always on time. If Auntie's just there in the blue moon, that's on time. <laughs> and but but anyway, I think permission for use is a is a debate. You know, is is a light wave or a sound wave? What's the permission of use? And you know, I think if you if you use the construct of IP, which is a Western construct of protecting ideas, well, this thought class also uh, um, happens to apply to the beautiful sound waves of Te Reo Māori. And so, in that context, how do you ask for permission to use that IP? And so, if you look at the All Blacks, well, they've had a relationship with the iwi for quite a long time now, several decades, and they've been gifted that taonga. That treasure but it didn't just happen on day dot they couldn't just take it and go it's mine suckers they've had to go you know they've been through challenges on the use of that tongue and so by going through the trials and tribulations they popped out on the other end successfully i think there's a better way of doing it and that better way is going have a conversation if you google marae or iwi into google you Look for the one that's closest to you and give them a ring. It starts that simply. And you'll probably find that the permission of use just falls away after you've had a kai. Because having a kai, it's hard to get angry with each other on a full stomach. Ancestors were clever, man. I really love where Teoroha leaves us there, reminding us that actually we need relationship, not political correctness, to be the motive for moving forward that we can learn about each other, get to know each other. That Te Reo Māori is a window into a way of thinking. I mean, had you ever really thought that for some, their local mountain, their maunga, is a grandparent to them, that it's that intimate? I mean, the, the word whenua, the word for, for land, is also the word for placenta. So attitudes are informed by language, and when we understand more of the language, we understand where people are coming from and why they see the world so differently to us. And that can be a real gift to enrich our view of the world. And hopefully, if it's a free exchange, we hopefully can enrich theirs as well. But the starting point is relationship, not having to be right. 
We want to be a community, a nation, where the treaty, for example, is not just some ancient document, but actually this living, breathing promise between two partners to forge a life together. We haven't always been good at that, but the good thing about life is that it's never too late to start again. Maybe this is our time to start again. I don't know about you, I'm feeling really challenged to go and learn some more Tereo. I had a little kind of go at this a few years ago, but it was an informal group that didn't last very long. And so it's interesting with language, it's kind of use it or lose it, right? I think it might be time to go back and revisit some of those lessons because it is a lovely thing to be able to speak to somebody in the words that mean so much to them, to see their eyes light up, that you've taken the time to engage in their world on their terms. It's a beautiful way of connecting with other people. Well, I'd love to hear your thoughts about all of this. You can visit the website, activeintelligence.nz, and we'll see you next time.